Hi and welcome to the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month we're talking to Charles Radcliffe, entrepreneur and data philosopher. We're talking about dubious business models, narratives of ethics, using the court system for preemptively working through issues with the automated cars. And we also have a lovely heated conversation near the end about our favourite, the trolley problem. We've had some technical issues on the website, so sorry if you're having problems downloading the podcast. You can find it at machine-ethics.net on YouTube if you search for Machine Ethics Podcast, or you can support us on patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. Thank you very much, and I hope you enjoy. Um, so, hi Charles. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, it's really great to meet you. Um, if you could just uh, quickly tell the listeners uh, a little bit about yourself and um, how you got here. Absolutely. So, um, so my name is Charles Radcliffe, um, and I call myself a data philosopher. Um, and I should probably start with explaining what I think that means. Um, and it comes back from a few years ago when I used to run a data analytics company in London. And um, my frustration was the metaphors that are used by the technology world are so poorly fitted to uh, what it is actually that we're doing. And I think initially my, my response was in, in relation to sort of data warehousing as a, as a concept, which to me had got very little um, to do with what actually a warehouse would be built to do, to kind of um, you know, store things, but on, on part of the supply chain, data warehousing was much more of a you know, archiving library type model um, where you want data to kind of live, be clean and stay forever. Um, and um, it was a time, um, sort of the early, early part of the decade where um, the idea of data science started to uh, come into the common parlance and we had data scientists. Big data. Big data. Big data, yeah. Um, we had data scientists that worked for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I was talking about how actually, you know, design thinking and interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary approaches to solving problems was, in my view, superior way and how you know, we've seen that in other industries um, and actually how very little of what a data scientist does is actually a very good metaphor for science. Um, they're, they're kind of just you know, statisticians. With data a bit of, analysts rather than scientists. Maybe. Yeah, analysts or, yeah. or, or just, kind of just you know, stats people with yeah. um, a bit of uh, hacker, hacker skills. Um, and I'm, I'm doing the whole industry a big disservice by saying <laughs> that. Um, but actually um, a lot of the problems that we... Uh, we face, uh, you know, with 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 what we do in the data world, um, suddenly starts looking at kind of ethical kind of questions, and I was asking a lot of those kind of how and why type mm. questions at this event, and I said at the time, um, you know, what we really need, but maybe and I said the great luxury a philosopher has is philosophers just ask questions; they don't, right? They, they don't have the answers. They don't have answers. No. Um, and I think good philosophers just to stay with the questions. So I said, what we need is are more data philosophers. And the name kind of stuck from there. Yeah. And so since then, I've, I started a blog and um, I, I talk on the subject of um, digital ethics. And what's, for me, what's really interesting, this is why it's great to meet you, because we're kind of doing very similar things, um, is there's a lot of people from uh, the technology world with, with tech skills mm-hmm. who recognize this. And they, um, you know, they have podcasts or they have blogs or they write books. I've just finished reading a book by uh, Max Tegmark, who's an astrophysicist at MIT and started the Future of Life Institute, which mm. is looking at the future yeah. of AI. That Life 3.0. That's the one, yeah. yeah. Great book, great book. But it's a book written very much from an astrophysicist's perspective and view on the world. Um, and he starts this Future of Life Institute, which is asking all the questions like, what is the meaning mm. of life? What is the purpose of AI? What are we trying to achieve? And they have like you know all the great and the good from the AI world, like Margaret Bowden and um, Murray. Uh, um, um, I can't remember the surname. Um, Hanra, um, um, I can't remember the surname. Um, I can see his face. Um, Stuart um, Stuart Russell and others. Mm. Um, and they've got, got it's like a token philosopher. <laughs> Mm. There, which is Sam Harris. But Stuart Russell asked a lot of these questions as well, though. I think but that's the like, thing is that these these are tech people. Yeah, these are computer scientists. You know, Kurzweil. Um, yeah. You know, he's a he's a computer scientist, and and they face um, they face the kind of ethics philosophy questions, um, and very very seldom have I seen them actually try to engage with kind of I would say mainstream or classical. Um, and I see this as a lot of the problems, you know, my kind of social commentary with data, my data philosopher mm. blog is around how 
you know, the tech world seems so ill-equipped to answer some of these problems and doesn't realise sometimes yeah. that there's probably 2,000 plus years of of thinking yeah, and yeah. not answers uh, uh, acceptably. But there's, a, there's an element of hubris within the tech world that, you know, we can change the world. We're so powerful with what we do with technology. Um, and we have been commercially successful, mm-hmm. like, you know, the Zuckerbergs and Musks of the world. Yeah. Uh, that's their proof that they are all-powerful and all, all knowledgeable. Mm. And therefore, this thing that philosophers have kind of struggled with for 2,000 years, we, we, will, we will try and solve mm. without inviting them to the party. And so that's really kind of a lot of the way I come at this is, you know, I'm not a techie. I, I, I'm a geek, but I think there's a yeah. difference between someone who's a bit geeky and a bit and actually properly techie. So I'm kind of humanities, liberal arts trained, I'm a lawyer by training. So I come right. at these questions of ethics from a very different angle. Um, but I love the technology world and I love working with very technical people. Um, but I think I bring something different to that. And a lot of part of what I'm trying to do is try and encourage more people from humanities backgrounds to engage with these questions because yeah. I think these questions are so important. Do you have what, what set you down this line originally? So was it to do with the personal data maybe side of things that you maybe had to deal with during work or was it to do with more big data and how we are using this data like how it's, we're using this data in a, in a dubious fashion to help the economic impact of some company or you know um, what was it that kind of maybe set you off to try and think uh, to think more about the subject? I, I think it was I think it was my own experience as a as a consumer, mm. as well as as a as a supplier to the industry, and I think my consumer experience was, you know, you, uh, you know, I looked at the kind of the, the, the growing rise of kind of cloud services, um, you know, probably ten years ago now, mm. and and realizing that you know actually what cloud is describing is you know just another fancy word for client server architecture but one where you're paying a sort of subscription fee and yeah. things like Dropbox for example I have an allergic reaction to um, uh. because um, essentially you know they're taking money off people like you and me yeah. um, uh, to store our data and where you know we've got loads of free storage space on our phones. I mean, my phone I reckon has got 50 gig of storage. Mm. My laptop has got you know probably three times that. So we have all this connected technology ourselves in our pockets and at home. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a geek, so I've got loads of computers all connected to the internet at any one point in time with free storage. And yet our solution to backing up our data and having it accessible and synced with all our devices mm. is to pay some third party to store it on a server for us yeah. and, and, and that becomes our kind of golden source of truth and to me you know we could solve that problem using a distributed yes. um, solution that's actually free. Um, I, I think um, that uh, really resonates with me because I think there are very um, interesting products on the, on the internet for instance for technological products which are maybe you could even call them social uh, or societal or citizen products yeah um and one of those is email Mm -hmm. Um, because email is free and email you can set up yourself and you can have an email server and that's your email server yeah and that's your email and people can send email to you you know on a a aws yeah Yeah, exactly you can set on a cloud cloud or like you know a hosting company yeah right um and that's yours and and you can look after that and um, that's great and what you said is true it's very much the case that you could set up a you know hire a a server somewhere and sync all your devices to it and that would take a little bit of effort Um, but you could do it and that would be a distributed thing that you could make yourself and and it, we could do this with lots of things. <laughs> yeah, but all you could use, I mean, I use, um, this is my, my plug at an anti-dropbox right. um, solution. I use a, a, a company called Resilio as a product called Sync. Right. It does exactly the same thing a Dropbox does, but it doesn't, you don't upload all your files into a server. It just literally syncs them peer-to-peer between the devices. Yes, the you have to be online at the same time, don't you? You have, for it to really work yeah. practically, you have to have at least one of the devices online. Yeah. But I think for most, most of, of us, that is actually mm-hmm. true. Um, for me, that's always that's always true. I've got you know at least a number of devices online. Yeah. Um, as you get all the all the, all the advantages of Dropbox, but it's a, a kind of open source ish project they're trying to commercialise. Yeah. But the very interesting about Sync is that they were born out of the um, uh, it was a BitTorrent uh, product actually originally. Right. Right. And so when they initially started to go to markets yeah. uh, to enterprise clients, they really struggled having that BitTorrent 
relationship yeah. and event, event ends up rebranding. Um, but I think I think that's the thing about sort of engineering solutions to be, um, you know, it's like self-storage mm. companies in the real world. You know, they say, oh, you've got this junk in your house, you can clear your house, yeah, and yeah. you can put it in a container and you'll pay like £10 a month. And you'd be like, oh, this is really easy. Oh, actually, I'll have a bigger t- container. I'll pay £50 a month. Yeah. Um, and then you've, you don't pay it for whatever reason. or You forget to pay. And they write you a letter and they say, unless you pay yeah. what we owe, um, we're going to burn all your stuff or give it to a... a you know, we're going to sell it on eBay. Yeah. And most people are highly motivated to quickly pay that bill. Yes. So you know, yeah. self-storage companies are you know, vultures on <laughs> people's um, sense of, of you know, uh, wanting to hold their own, you know, yeah. wanting to keep their, their things that mean something to them. And the cloud storage companies are the same, but yeah. for our data. I think it was that that kind of started me thinking right, okay. about this more. Yeah. And then just to essentially mention email, Gmail. Um, Gmail offended yeah. me so much when you know, it first started 10 years ago, or more than that now, but yeah, maybe about 10 years mm. ago. I was hosting my own Microsoft Exchange server for my firm, mm-hmm. and it was expensive. Um, and you know, was it's Microsoft Exchange, so it has limitations. And Gmail came along, mm. and it had all these features, and it looked great. Um, and it was free, mm-hmm. and they were giving away you know insane sized mailboxes for free, which compared to my quite expensive um, Exchange server, um, this is pre Office three six five, was quite appealing. Um, but when I realized that what Google were doing with my data and how they were looking to profile me, um, that's when I had an allergic reaction to it and yeah. said, I would, I, I, I'm, I'm quite happy to um, use Gmail. I'd be mm-hmm. really up for using Gmail, but I want the choice to pay. Yes, um, yeah. I don't, and at the moment, they don't offer that choice to pay. You can either have the, well, they do now, but yeah. you have a yeah, free yeah. service or you have no service. Um, and the, the bargain is, the free service, they get to mine your data and they get to use that. For I think that's, that's the problem, isn't it? It's, that it's, a, it's not a transparent bargain. It's, it's not, you're not going to read all the T's and C's necessarily because there's going to be a lot of information there. How, who does? To, to discover yeah. that they're going to be doing some, some nefarious stuff with your data or stuff that you didn't necessarily sign up for. And I think maybe that's worse <laughs> not that they're doing it at all but that they're secret like they're doing it in a way that is not obvious to anyone um, and especially us being kind of interested in the technology and, and being maybe more on the nerdy side yeah you would have thought that we would be um, more technically literate to be able to find that information but it's still very difficult to work out like is my phone spying on me is my email spying on me and all these things and what's really happening with that information and, no, exactly. I mean, I think um, I think transparency is, is is one thing which is um, is paramount. I, and I think you know recently, and I do feel that there will be a backlash towards tech companies if uh, if they don't get this right. I mean, Apple recently with their um, slowing down old phones. You know, again, yeah. the transparency was the problem. But I think with Gmail, the other side of this, which was so insidious, is. Um, how you know email and, and, and credit to Google um, in terms of whoever sat in their strategy meeting and went, oh wow, if we were to offer email for free and make it mm. awesome, we would get all these customers. Yeah. And if we get enough critical mass of customers on our platform, uh, we then basically own email. Yeah. And what's what the penny dropped with me when I realised that actually it didn't really matter whether I had a Gmail account or not because I correspond with so many people who do have Gmail accounts uh, that Google actually know quite a lot about me yeah. and how I write, the words I use. They can yeah. profile me just as easily without me ever actually signing up yeah, for their yeah. service. Now, I'm sure they don't. I'm sure they don't. Um, they know who you are. But they know who I am. <laughs> and suddenly I realized that actually there's a lot of examples of that where tech companies um, can you know, fly uh, quite, so cl- quite close to the wind where it comes to ethics and mm-hmm. maybe even the law. Yeah. Um, in order to grab a market and then once they've grabbed that market then they can clean up their act and be and that's what recently happened with Google last year they said oh we're, we're, we're going to change our T's and C's we're not going to mine your data mm. and it's like well well done Google you know it's, it's fine for you to say that now now yeah. you are undisputably the king of email yeah what happened to all of those email hosting businesses that you put out of business yeah. and what happened to all that ago? data that you've probably already got as well exactly um so that's my that's my issue yeah. with uh, as a as a consumer with consumer. Yeah. Sorry, a little bit of a tangent. No, no, there. no. Um, um, and I, professionally, just one more thing. So, pro- yeah. the professional side, I I, I I very rarely came across an example of a of a client who um, who said, "Oh, we've got all this data, and 
how do we kind of you know greedy eyes how do we kind of yeah, yeah. get as much value but I, there was one instance which was a I won't name the client um, for fear of <laughs> lawsuits but um, a well-known organization that wanted to start a, um, a digital only bank and there's lots of reasons mm-hmm. why that's a good idea yep. um, and they already have a financial services product and, and one of the things they said in the meeting and this is kind of again gave me an allergic reaction mm-hmm. was they said we've got all this we what we realized I said why you want to do yeah, this yeah, what's yeah. what's your, what are you what are you trying to achieve and the guy in the room said um, quite innocently mm-hmm. um, We've got all this data. It's amazing. Like, if we really tried, we know so much about our customers, but we yeah. don't. And surely, like, if we were just to be able to kind of join all this data up, get more information about what they spend money on, where they spend it, we can monetize that data. Mm. And, and I said, I don't think that's a reason to set up a bank. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think if you express that in those words to your customers, yeah. they would have some serious issues. And yeah. I think you need to have a, a different reason for doing this. Yeah. And I think you need to have a absolute watertight kind of data privacy, data ethics approach to this. Mm-hmm. And actually that would be a high differentiator because I think a lot of your competitors may be thinking along the lines that you just have just described um, and may not kind of, um, may not express it quite in those words. And he said, oh, oh yeah, okay. that's just our kind of compliance department or our marketeers who kind so, of need yeah. to kind of fluff up the language. Yeah, but yeah. the reality is that every, every bit of data that we have has a value and we could cash that in. And mm. I was like, I don't want to be a part of this project. And, and, and that was a very much a, um, a statement on my part. So, yeah, I, yeah good luck. <laughs> yeah. I just want to have nothing to do with it. It was one instance I've seen of something which I had a real issue with um, yep. and that's another problem I think with us as technologists and working in the tech world is that we face um, and I did a survey of, of my team I said like how would you solve an ethical problem in, in on the coalface yeah. and the answers varied and basically it's an individual producer kind of we, we rely on individual people doing the right thing or trying to seek help in their own way yeah. and very few companies um, actually have a mechanism to help people who are facing those kind of ethical challenges on the cold face mm-hmm. work them through. And also we are, you know, as you know, or techies are probably quite ill-equipped to solve these problems because, um, you know, the training uh, techie people receive is in, is in the technology and not necessarily in the classics. Um, yeah. And I think bringing those two worlds together is... Uh, so, it's a key thing. So, what do you think they need? Um, I mean, if there, uh, let's say there are individuals who are interested in making organisations better. Yeah. Um, what what could they benefit from having? Or do they just listen to the podcast, or they read your blog, and, and then everything's okay? Or <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's, I mean, you know, I think reading reading up on this subject and and, and podcasts and blogs, I think, is a great starting point, and hopefully. Mm-hmm hopefully gets people interested but there's a lot of this stuff um yeah tegmark's recent book is is a good example of something which is um i don't think acknowledges quite truly what the problem is which is you know it comes back to that paradigm of you know we're techies we're commercially Mm. successful techies therefore we're right we see philosophical ethical problems we're going to apply science to solving it and we're just going to kind of brute force our way through and to hell with you if you have a different view yeah um and, um, and, and I think there's an alternative stance to that, um, which is, um, uh, you know, really what, what, what the ethos of my, my blog's about. Um, yep. But in terms of organisations, um, you know, what's, um, I think digital ethics is not something that's taken seriously by uh, anyone, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you might say, OK, well, Google have got an ethics board or Facebook have an ethics board. Yep. Yes, they do, but they meet behind closed doors and they have private conversations about mm-hmm. this. Yep. That is very much like the tobacco industry in the 1950s, where the world's going, oh, do you know what? This might be bad for people. Mm-hmm. And tobacco companies are like, no, 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 no. It's all fine. We've got it under control. Yeah. And then 30 years later, on a lot of lawsuits, the truth comes out. And that's pretty much what, what we're seeing today. We are seeing big tech companies having ethics committees, yep. discussing this problem, funding, you know, uh, Musk put in $10 million into the Future of Life Institute. You know, he's publicly said he's worried about this stuff. Yeah. 
and that's good. I'm glad that people like him are putting cash in and, and spoking de- um, sparking debate. But so little of this debate is actually fully inclusive at the grassroots, including yeah. non-technical people. Yeah. And the only interaction that technical non-technical people get to this stuff mm-hmm. is, you know, sensationalist headlines in the sun saying your job will be terminated, which came out like two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a constant treadmill, I think, with the news and that sort of um, headline at the moment with uh, fear-mongering almost yeah. about these sorts of technologies. And so there's a, there's a different way, though, I think, about getting, getting some dialogue and trying to get people, and that's what I try and mm-hmm. do. But I think one thing, you know, one of my own experience, I, I just um, did a stint to work for a, a large um, financial services organisation, and um, yeah, there was a couple of examples there of, you know, technology being brought into the bank to solve problems, yeah. but kind of posing, I would say, Questions about should we be doing this or mm-hmm. should we not be doing this? And I won't go into, I won't go into a, a detail example. Um, you can if you if you really want to. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's, uh, it's 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 not uh, it's not worth the hassle. <laughs> um, but let's fair to say that I think that's fairly typical of every big organisation going. Yeah. Oh, there's a clever bit of technology. Um, uh, we could we could solve a problem with this. And I remember two examples of, of me, uh, you know, in those meetings saying, um, whoa, 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 guys, you know, why are we doing this? And then mm-hmm. you're getting, okay, well, because it's saving money or because it's giving a better customer experience or yeah, yeah. whatever. And it's like, really? And then you kind of go in, go into kind of the real reason why. Um, and, you know, th- th- I think being acknowledging that is important, whether there's a judgment on that re- yeah, reason yeah. is beside the point. And then, and, and then the second thing is, I think once you can kind of step through that thinking process, then more people suddenly go, oh, do you know what? Ooh, this suddenly feels a bit icky and yeah. maybe we shouldn't be doing this after all. The challenge you've got is if you go to, and banking is a good example, because mm. banking, you know, 10 years ago, banks kind of really had to clean up their acts, a lot more regulation, a lot more emphasis on compliance in the culture uh, of the organisation. So... It'd be much less likely now for there to be a very question, overtly questionable business practice being conducted in a bank um, without somebody slamming the door on it. I mean, mm-hmm. 15 years ago, 30 years ago, commonplace. Now, much, much less likely. Not, I'm not saying it's impossible, but much yeah. less likely. And the mantra there is we have a compliance department which is there to try and avoid this stuff. Yeah. And also they... they they, you know, part of the mandatory training that everyone goes through if you work in a bank is that everyone is a risk manager. Everyone is, is in charge of compliance and ethics. And it's not something you can outsource to the compliance department say it's yeah. their problem. If you spot something that you think is wrong, you are, you know, you could go to jail yourself if you don't say something. This is, uh, this is a really interesting point. Do you think that it's just um, terminology? I mean, within these companies, you say uh, due diligence, risk, ethics, but do you think it's actually not about ethics? It is just about um, the, treading the line where the law is and being just underneath it. It's not about, I don't think it's about treading the, the line of the law. I think it's about having a, a, a process to help people with because most mm-hmm. people don't understand law. Most people try and follow the law but mm-hmm. haven't got a clue. Um, and, you know, when it comes to something, you know, where they kind of brush up against the law. Um, most people, I know a friend who called me up recently, and he was an you know, amateur lawyer, studied law at university, didn't practice. A friend at university, you know, he got an angry letter from a company he owed some money to, right. taking him to court. And he was quite terrified. And this guy is an accountant, you know, he, he's a professional person, he's an astute guy. Um, but he was, you know, legitimately worried about you know criminality and yeah. concepts which have actually nothing to do with a, you know a, a quite a petty debt and so I was talking it through with him at first principles and saying look at the end of the day it's up to you pay the debt or have your day in court yeah. at the end of the day you know it's about making your case agreeing the, the least hassle way forward and if you they find you have to pay the bill you have to pay the bill and that's fine but that's not a criminal activity and but me having to explain that came from a lack of understanding on his part no right. no judgment on him why would he know any different with Compliance functions in banks, they spend a lot of time educating people mm. as to this, this is what the law says, this is what our policy says, and this is how you should solve problems. Mm-hmm. But then when you face things that you don't feel equipped to solve, here's a mechanism to help you work through that. And we have this team of experts that can 
take the burden away. Yeah. So the, the whole compliance department's function is to be that radar system to kind of catch stuff before it goes wrong. What's really interesting is if you call a compliance department in a bank, mm. and I happen to have done, and yeah. said, hey, I'm really worried about robot ethics yeah. and about AI, they like not oh, necessarily equipped to deal they, with that. They like they thought it was a prank call. Right. <laughs> it was like, really? That's funny. You know. Yeah. <laughs> we're worried Good about one. fixing yeah. libel. We're worried about yes, fraud. Yeah. We're not worried about you know AI. Yeah. Um, that's somebody else's problem. But that's what I mean about there there being this uh, idea of ethics, but doesn't really exist in business in a, in a meaningful way. Um, tech ethics. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I think yeah. I think I think that's true. Um, and and I think there's but there is a way to solve that. I think you know if you if you're a business that feels that your technology is a uh, a key part of your industry or your business, mm-hmm. um, then you would have a, a, a head of technology or a head of innovation to kind of run that and own that and to implement that. Yeah. That person is very unlikely to have the first clue apart from an amateur in understanding yeah. of tech ethics. And I think at the very minimum, mm-hmm. you, you need to have a, a conduit to solve that problem. And I think over time, the best practice is do what Google do, have a digital ethics committee, but absolutely have it yeah. in the public domain and open yeah. and bring in your competitors, bring in your suppliers, your customers, yeah. because um, you know, that's the forum for, for dealing with this stuff. Or failing that, bring us in, right? Well, funny that bring us in, but I mean, I think if you know, if, if Google hired me to kind of say like, how do we solve our digital ethics problem? Yes, um, I would be helping them. I think the answer yeah. we would get to would be let's have this debate in the public. Yes, um, right. Do you think there's? I mean, because that is practical for Google, right? Because Google is a large business. It's a very, very large business. I think it's practical right? and necessary for Google. In practical Google's and necessary. Case. Yes, yeah. um, but maybe smaller businesses. Um, let's say. Um, medium-sized businesses up to 150 something like that mm. um, they it's not necessarily practical to have an ethics board do you think that's true or do you think there's something else that those companies could do um, when they're getting to these issues where they have to deal with new technologies which are dealing with data yeah or how how these things uh, algorithms are implemented in and affect people so I think I think that is much more the place that people like you and I can help mm. um, you know, look, I think small firm, you know, big firms like, you know, Google um, and, and the bank that I've just um, been working for the last couple of years, you know, they have, um, they have teams of lawyers working in general counsel functions um, and, and they can afford that luxury. Mm. Smaller firms might have an in-house lawyer and really small firms might just have a law firm that they bring in from time to time. Yeah. Um, and I think that model is, is really what we need for digital ethics. And the problem we have today isn't the fact that companies... Um, you know there aren't enough digital ethicists out there. The problem is that companies don't even realise mm. that that is an issue, and you know people at the coalface don't realise it's an issue or try and deal with it in their own kind of random way. Yep. And people at the top kind of say, oh, it might be a problem, a problem one day, or it's not our problem, it's somebody else's yeah. problem. Yeah, yeah. That's getting that imperative um, understood of like, look, if you're if you're doing this, you need to be thinking about. Yeah. Why you're doing it? How you're doing it? And, and, and what doing kind of technologies are we talking about when we're when we're talking about these companies that are trying to do these things and have maybe are hitting against these issues? Well, obviously AI. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the hot hot topic of today. So you know AI automation and robotics um, are, are the kind of three key key, key ones, and um, which which really clear uh, mm-hmm. why we need to have. Um, a good understanding of digital ethics, but I think it's true of um, of, of you know, many other things. We talked about email earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think um, there's a question, there is a question as to you know whether Gmail was an ethical thing to do. Um, and I would say, you know, if they had offered Gmail for, you can have it for free, but we'll mine your data, or you yeah. can pay five pound a month and we won't. Yes, I think that's yeah, okay. Yeah. I yeah. wouldn't have a problem with that, and I'd have I'd have an account. And at least it'd be transparent. You'd know that case you know that you chose the I'm getting mined button. Yep. You know what I mean? Uh, I just noticed your cuffs. <laughs> <laughs> My cuffs. Your cuffs. <laughs> yes. Does that lead anywhere? It does. So it was a, um, it was a gift uh, to me for many years ago when I was... Yeah. Um, running my data analytics company ah. so if anyone can't see my cuffs it's a, a QR code um, yeah. etched into etched your... into my kind of um, 
metal cufflinks. Yeah. Um, and it, take, it takes you to um, the website of my ah, okay. of my last company. But uh, uh, see, I'm a geek. So you should need, you see you need newer ones then. <laughs> I, I just love them. <laughs> I just think they're such a such a thoughtful <laughs> gift. Um, I they're great. I think um, if you can prove your nerdy credentials, there it is. Right yeah. There. So, uh, sorry about that interlude. No, um, no, that's fine. So, um, so in the absence of that, there was another. I think there was another mechanism, which is regulation. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm not. I'm not necessarily massively uh, a fan of regulation for regulation's sake. But I think um, there's such an absence of of, of yeah. understanding and best practice right now. I, I feel strongly that we need yeah. regulation. Did you Did you see the government putting together that public um, AI board, ethics board? Uh, recently, yeah, it was a couple of weeks ago, um, um, and is, it actually, is it actually set up? I think it's just a commitment they've made to, to set one up. They they put together a white paper hmm. describing what that meant, basically, yeah, um, and published that. And what I thought was really interesting about that, when you were talking about regulation, is yeah. that um, within that document there was no um, talk of regulation, regulation, uh, legislation. Um, there's no um, stick it was just carrot basically mm. so it was actually um, a committee basically promoting you know, UK um, work within the field rather than any um, cracking down in any way which right. was really really interesting yeah. I thought they'd taken that stance so I, um, I read a response to the um, um, IPPR uh, report which came out mm-hmm. just after Christmas um, which referenced that um, and um, you know the, the challenge I see with this is, um, you know, we, we need to kind of have activity at all levels, and you need to have grassroots activity. You need to have, I think we do need to have national regulators on this, yeah. but also at an international level. I don't, I don't mean the EU here. I mean you know at a global level, because the the challenge, um, and this will be something you know you're definitely familiar with, is that by not agreeing, kind of the, the kind of uh, the rules of the game, um, we can you know. Te- technology, I see, is technology is, is ultimately leverage, um, and, and that's one of the biggest reasons we we we, we, we seek to build technology is to give ourselves better leverage. The really interesting thing about AI and automation and robotics is it's like leverage at the most extreme sense, um, and one expression of that is um, the amount of capital wealth that can be created using by, by building this technology and licensing it to companies um, is really highly disproportionate to anything that we've seen in the past, and. What's interesting is that the winners and the losers, like I said with Gmail, mm, by yeah. kind of by doing things the wrong way, you can get. I mean, t- 2018 Gmail mm. is absolutely like synonymous with email. It's yeah. the platform, and they've got there. I think in by some sort of dubious methods, um, and um, I think with AI and automation, we we need to avoid the kind of the Gmail of AI or the you know the, the robotic of AI okay. of, of Gmail yeah. kind of happening. But the, int- the problem is that you can't just have that in, like, you know, in the UK, we're just going to do it properly and we're going to ban stuff that's not going to do it right. Um, we need to have some sort of international cooperation on this. And I think the biggest divide I see, I mean, there's a big divide I see between Silicon Valley, the Silicon Valley mindset, and I'm yeah. huge generalization there because I, I know there's a diversity of opinion with, even within Silicon yeah, Valley. Yeah. But compare that to the, say, the Bristol UK mindset, the former Silicon Valley, the Silicon Gorge. Yeah. Um, there's a very different approach between those two places, but a much bigger shift is between, I would say, the West and China. Mm-hmm. Um, and it comes around a kind of pri- data privacy squeamishness. And I, I use that, that, that phrase in a provocative sense because we in the West typically are quite squeamish around data privacy. We don't like, you know, Gmail just feels a bit icky because we don't like the idea of people spying on us. And, and I think quite for good reason, and 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 that's that's that, that's um, and that's certainly been my stance. I've been a uh, I've been a sort of data privacy advocate most of my my life. Yeah. Um, in China, there's a there's a much it's a very different mindset, which is actually the in, your individual rights are much less important mm. than the kind of the rights of of, of society as a whole. Right. Um, and so they don't really have this sort of data privacy squeamishness, nor really do they have a mechanism to agitate for it if they wanted it, which is a problem mm. specific to, to China. But um, but taking the, sort of the state of privacy point, um, if you look at what um, makes successful um, AI solutions, it's a combination of computational power, mm-hmm. which is ubiquitous and cheap, and no one's really got advantage on that. 
Um, you've then got the actual quality of the algorithms themselves, which again is a bit of an arms race. Yeah, you know, your, yeah. your skill set is the taste there. The third thing is the data that you have and the quality of the data. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting from my perspective is that actually Chinese AI companies have a massive advantage over the rest of us because they um, are have a lot less friction in order to get data on individuals and, and, and right. individual predilections of people. Yep. And I'm, I make no judgment as to whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, I think it's not always so clear-cut. Um, and I would say something like, you know, if you were to give up your personal genetic data mm. and if that was to help a health service or a pharmaceutical company find a cure for cancer, yeah. um, then maybe that is, as Barack Obama has said, your moral imperative to do so. Yeah. Um, I think there's one side of the argument that says that. On the other yeah. side of the argument, it says, well, no, my data is mine and I shouldn't, yeah. so shouldn't be coerced into giving it up. If we go back to the kind of philosophy aspect of that, yeah. what you've basically stipulated is we've got this dual argument of data um, um, privacy for us, privacy's sake, which is quite um, Kantianism, yep. Kantian, let's say, so it's quite duty-led, and then you've got the utilitarian side, which is, well, it depends on the outcome, it depends what we use it for, it depends if we are helping people, right? Yeah. Um, so that's quite interesting. But interesting that, that, that we, we, we're talking in terms of Western philosophy here, mm-hmm. and I think this is, this is where we need a, a much higher... Um, and, and I'm not. I'm not suggesting I'm equipped to, to to offer any kind of real substance on this. But I, I think we 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 come at things through the lens, and we play the language game that we play. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think acknowledging that there's a different viewpoint on this, yeah. and um, and trying to move to a point where at least you can have a conversation on je- mm-hmm. on, on on common terms. Yeah. means that you can then start to hopefully bring those two sides of the argument together. Yeah. Um, and I think it, within Eastern philosophy, there's a, there's a very different psychology around the individual versus the collective. And, and we have a very individualistic sense in, 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 in the West. And I think we make judgments based on that. I don't, I don't see any example of those two traditions thinking about this problem in that way. And I personally think, yeah, that's the job of something like the UN to set up a, you know, the Future of Life Institute that Tegmark did is yeah. is is great. I'm all for mm-hmm. it, but I think that should be that that should be something the UN is doing, in yeah. just as much as uh, you know solving human rights abuses and other very important things around the environment. Um, we should be starting to look at digital ethics at that level, yeah. and um, because if we don't, what we end up with is a polarization of arguments as to which Western philosophy. Is is the right one to apply to this? Yes. Um, and then those in you know in in, in uh, China uh, will, will say, well, that's just doesn't make can't. sense. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's as foreign to me as uh, as. Uh, so so maybe we have to use the historical context of ethics um, and apply it in a new way, right? So we have to create a new form of ethics, and we, we're giving all, we're throwing all these terms around. We're yeah. saying tech ethics machine ethics, uh, digital ethics, data ethics, you know, tech philosophy or whatever it is. But yeah. actually what we're talking about is um, maybe creating some sort of common language how you talk about um, these technologies and how they impact people. And, and that's kind of a murky area where we have to kind of navigate yeah. um, and I think we should using be, these tools, I guess. We should be agreeing some ground rules as to what, what, what can and cannot be done. And yep. lowest common denominator, I would, I would suggest, is because of the effect of this technology it has, mm. lowest com- common denominator is the, is the place. And then within that, we can then start to look at some policy questions as to, um, you know, should we be allowing autonomous uh, um, machines to make kill decisions? Um, yeah. Yeah, I have particularly strong views on that, um, but yep. I, 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 I accept that you know other people might might feel very differently. What, but I what's think your you, opinion on that? Well, I, I, I don't think my opinion. I also want to stress, I don't think my opinion on that is 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 any more valuable than anyone else's. I think the strongest thing I feel is that we should be having that conversation in the open um, yep. as society, and we've I feel like we've kind of been um, conditioned to accept. 
um, a, you know, we have a, a state of reality today where we yeah. have autonomous vehicles that there's a human in the loop and, yep. they, and they perform some tasks on an autonomous basis and there's a huge balance of power uh, that that can be created using that dynamic yep. and um, and and you might say well from a national security perspective that's a good thing or you might say from a from a kind of sovereignty and 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 uh, sort of a egalitarian perspective it's wrong on other you know whatever your view on that yeah there's just not a, a it's not something on the public agenda it's something that's been decided behind closed doors with lawyers yep. and politicians and maybe some ethicists around but not society as a whole yep. and i think that if we can fix that mm-hmm then we are some way to kind of getting to a, an answer. Yeah, um, I think um, uh, on that um, point, I think the, the, the funniest thing that I see is that people, a lot of the people who are loudest talking about this don't know the technology. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really interesting. I don't think it's, I don't think that we should throw these people out and that they are not relevant. But I think it's interesting that there's uh, a lot to speak uh, from people who aren't familiar with um, literally the technology, literally how you make something or mm-hmm. how something is implemented or mm. that sort of stuff. Uh, and that, that's one of the things that aggravates me being a technologist. <laughs> it's, um, it's funny because what aggravates <laughs> me is, is, is the opposite. It's, it's technologists who you don't understand. Yes, um, you need to make a bridge, right? Yeah. So you need to bridge that gap. Um, so you need both of those people on board. Yeah. And, and if you have only one and not the other, then you're going to have yeah. a problem. Um, you need both. I mean, Alan Winfield is, is, is an example of, um, of, I think, someone who... I've got a, I'll caveat this by saying yep. he's an awesome guy. He's also been on the podcast He's before. been on the podcast. Yep. Um, he's a great guy, and I think he's doing some great, great work. But I think there's... Um, I think the, the language game that he's playing is different from the language game that, say, I'm playing, mm-hmm. and is different from the language game that um, most people play. And I think within that, there's 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 a there's a risk. And so he he's you know one of the things he says is, before you have ethical robots, you need to have ethical roboticists. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's great. But then he goes on to say, I've proven that I've I've built a robot that's made an ethical decision. Yes. And that's where suddenly his language game and my language game start to diverge, mm-hmm. yeah. because I don't think he has. I think he's yeah. made a robot that's expressed his ethical choice yeah um and i think that's different yeah and then he goes further and he'll say you know he's been involved in setting a a, a, a standard on 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 ethics for mm-hmm. ethical design and the idea is and i think he actually used this phrase and if he didn't then i hope he forgives me for saying this <laughs> um he says like you know it's basically like giving like a, an ethical kite mark stamp yes. to products yeah. that's where i suddenly have a real problem with this yeah. because i think if you if you were to walk into a shop and you have two computers, just, mm-hmm. just being facetious here. And one computer you know, has all these specs, and the other computer has all these specs. Yeah. But one computer has the ethical stamp. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's an ethical computer. That's, yeah. that's somehow good. We, we associate the word ethical mm-hmm. with somehow good, mm-hmm. goodness. We, kind of, we, we conflate those two concepts. And so people will think, I'm going to buy the ethical machine because it's somehow good. Yeah. It, there's nothing intrinsically good about that machine. If you look at humans, yep. you know, we are ethical machines. We make ethical decisions. And um, you know, you and I are very different. Um, mm-hmm. Hopefully, you know, our our kind of standard of ethics isn't too different. Um, but you know, equally, there could be a mass murderer or child rapist or yep. some somebody who does horrific things that we would both have an ethical allergic reaction to if we talked about what they feel was right or wrong mm-hmm. um, but that but that's not to say that, that person is any less ethical uh, uh, being than we are that person unless they're a psychopath yes. they're still able to make ethical decisions yeah so sure. we are all ethical beings yeah so by the alan winfield description we yeah. would all get you know a tattoo on our forehead saying ethical ethical, ethical person yeah, ethical so. person and so I think breaking the technology world into psychopathic computers and yeah. ethical machines isn't actually very helpful yeah. and is actually quite misleading. Um, I spoke to the Andersons, okay. um, who I briefly forgot their names, um, who have also been on the podcast, and they wrote a book called Machine Ethics. Um, so they kind of um, almost, they didn't coin, but they almost coined the term and they've been working um, one of them is a technologist and one is a philosopher. Oh, um, really? Okay. Um, That's a great... Which is a great combination. Pairing, yeah. um, 
and they spoke to me and one of their mantras actually is interesting to what you've just said which is we don't want to make ethical machines which make ethical um, static decisions right that can't change mm. what we're trying to do is make machines that are making us better so making moral decisions which are which are better and, and in a direction that we want to go and that's dangerous it is <laughs> but it but it but it implies the conversation I think yeah. it implies that people have have started to stipulate what better is and that's what is interesting to me so they kind of they're building in the fact that people have to make a decision about what is going to push us forward and not yeah. um, restrict us so I have I haven't read the book and so I'll add yeah. it to my, my well it's, my, it's to do with uh, some of the latest stuff because they're actually doing some implementation stuff at the moment so okay uh, I'll I'll have to I'll have to kind of read up on what they're talking about yeah. to to be informed. I think the da- the danger is if you've got machines that are making kind of choices, mm-hmm. um, they're extensions of you. They are leverage of your choices. Mm-hmm. And so if you take the stance um, like a, a tagmark uh, type stance, which is, you know, there is kind of one single truth. There is one single correctness. Um, we we are on a process to discover what that one single truth, what one single mm-hmm. correctness is. Yeah. Um, and so once we've discovered that thing, then all we need to do is just help machine get machines to just execute on that, and and yeah. and, and to hell with everyone else because they'll be wrong. Yeah. To me, that's the same sort of misguided philosophy yeah. that um, you might accuse a you know highly evangelical religious mm-hmm. missionary of. Yeah. Um, you know, going off into the Amazon and trying to convert native people who've yeah. been living their way for three thousand years, you, that person is going to come up with all sorts of frictions and yeah. maybe judge for certain things because of that. You know, my way is right, okay. and and and, and yeah. therefore I need to. Imp- my duty is to impose it on the world. It's quite reductive, I think, as well. Um, it is saying that there is almost a mathematical truth to kind of a moral imperative, which is we presume couldn't be the case being cultural beings being yeah. social animals so. but I think by giving by, by, by looking at how you distribute out ethical robots or yeah. whatever yeah, yeah. technology to people so the problem is the people you give it to you're giving a lot of power and leverage to those people mm-hmm. to potentially enforce their view on the world on everyone else yeah. and I think we need to be having I think we need to reach some consensus on what are the what, what lines do we not want crossing and how do we want to kind of face some of those challenges mm-hmm. before we let technologists run off and build some of this stuff? And yeah. I think we're already a little bit behind the curve on that on that problem. Yeah. Um, and that kind of brings me on to the thing about something like the trolley problem. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, wh- what's your feeling about the trolley problem? Um, so anyone who doesn't know, and we should probably start with that. So the trolley problem is this: is the kind of um, I can't remember who who came up with it, um, but it was a it's a it's a classical thought experiment. Mm-hmm. So steeped in philosophy, not in or psych- psychology really, rather, yeah. rather than technology. But it's basically um, you've got a bunch of people um, on a train track. There's five on one side and one on the other, mm-hmm. and you hold the, the switch. Um, you your switch can only decide whether the five die or the one die because there's a train hurtling towards them yeah. and what do you do and almost everyone says oh, you pull the lever and, and kill the one yeah. um, and then there's a variation of that which is you're now standing on a bridge in front of a rather large person um, and there's five people on the track if you push the person onto the track yeah. um, the, uh, the one person will, kill it, will die and derail the train but the five people will be saved and most people have a real difficulty with that um, and you, you kind of see the opposite result the five die rather than the one it's a really interesting question about analyzing psychology and it's an interesting philosophical yeah. thing to discuss and I think that's where that's where people get stuck because as a thought experiment we could argue the right and the wrong and we can rationalize it but what people are talking about now is the trolley problem in relation to self-driving cars. Yeah. And I think what people, and this is the common thing I've heard, is like the trolley problem is a really difficult problem. We've got to kind of build in a solution to this into self-driving cars mm. because self-driving cars are going to face this problem. And it's true, self-driving cars are going to face problems where, I inverted commas, mm. choices are going to have to be made as to who lives and who dies. Yeah. 
But I think if you analyse how actually a real human would make that decision in the real world, mm -hmm. not a thought experiment, but in a real world decision, and then how society deals with the consequences of that, that actually could inform how we solve this problem for self-driving cars. And so the reality is that if you were that person holding the lever mm -hmm. or that person on top of the bridge, the reality is you would make a decision. And then after you've made that decision, the police would turn up, the insurance company would turn up, the media reporters would turn up and say, what the hell did you do that for? And you would give a story. Yeah. And your story wouldn't be a, a detailed blow-by-blow -blow account of the thought process you went through. Your story would be a post-rationalisation of your own narrative towards that, pre that past event. That's yeah. how we, you know, if you have a car accident, if you commit a murder, mm. um, your thought process is your thought process of the time. But the story that gets judged is your narrative back towards that, that your justification of why you did what you did. And then we make a society, we have a, we have a solution for that, is that we, we say well, either the police will say, okay, you know, no crime has been committed, off, off you go. Mm -hmm. Or they'll say, ooh, actually, we think, um, we think this is actually contravening some sort of rule. Yeah. Um, and we're going to, you know, hold you in front of the courts. And the courts then decide two things. The first job of the courts in that kind of criminal case will be to decide the truth. Yeah. Um, which again is a little bit of kind of legal hubris because really what they're deciding is they're just going to collapse all possibilities onto a single narrative but mm. whether that's the truth or not is, is, is neither here or there but it is, right. we'll all agree on a single narrative and that will be the narrative that you'll get judged against yeah. so the court decides on actually what, what was the real thought process so whatever invented story you came up with yeah. neither here or there, they'll come up with a story and then they'll say does that truth break a law and, and if it does, then how do we deal with that? So that's the process that the, the, law, the courts go through. So that's a human process. And we, we've, we've done this for thousands of years. In the UK, we've got a, a thousand year old legal system at least. And, and it, it kind of works-ish. Yep, sometimes. <laughs> um, but it's, it's the way that we outsource the difficulty of making these ethical decisions. We, we, have, we have laws, we have a balance of power, we have a court system, yeah. and we have a group of people that we call experts in truth, and we call them jurors, and we have a group of people that we call experts in ethics, and we call them lawyers and, and judges. Yeah. With self-driving cars, the problem is that the car doesn't make a, um, a post-rational kind of decision. It doesn't kind of just do something random, mm. and then afterwards try and build a story out of it. The car actually has to make a choice, and that's yeah. very different to how a human works. And so I don't think you can um, give a car a bit of programming mm. to, um, to solve that, that problem in that exact set of events that the car has. Yeah. Um, but I do think you can solve the problem in a different way, which is actually using the courts and using the legal system, but just making one small change to how yeah. they're set up. So one thing about the legal system is the legal system only tests real events. Yeah. There's no example of um, the legal system testing hypothetical events. You know, you can't go to court and say, if I was to kill my wife, how much time would I do? Yeah. Um, you, you, would, you would just be laughed out, out of the building. Um, <laughs> but we could quite easily set up a, um, a system whereby we have the same people mm -hmm. in the same buildings, um, building the same case law, testing out some of these cases you know the trolley problem case if the car was coming on this and they could have a mock trial where yeah. lawyers on both sides could come up with different arguments and they could try and argue through what's the right thing to do and what would be the results yeah and i think it's for car companies to put forward to the courts and to pay for mm. that process to test out some of these questions and to really imagine what are likely scenarios that our cars are going to face yeah um let's test these scenarios out before the courts and then the judges will come up with answers and then the car company can quite easily um, appeal it to higher levels of authority if they wanted to. Yeah. And that's the way, that, and the media will get involved, and that's the yeah. way society can make some, start to make decisions as to how do we deal with these problems. And then the job for the technologists then becomes an easy job. The job for the technologist isn't the job of you know, the computer scientist that has to program his ethical judgments into the machine and get it right. The job of the computer scientist then becomes simply make this car as yeah. best possible apply the law. 
And if the car failed in applying the law very well, then maybe it was badly engineered and maybe the yeah. technologists are liable. Um, and if the car um, did apply the law well, yeah. then you know, then there's nothing to worry about. Yeah. We can then deal with the liability after the scenes. And if the car finds a place where there's ambiguity in the law, mm-hmm. then the car then makes a decision as to, based on case law, based on its views on, yep. on the legal system, what's the judgment that it comes up with? And then that judgment can easily be tested in the courts you know, in a recursive mm-hmm. fashion to see whether that's a, a solution. And that's how you solve the trolley problem, using exactly the institutions we have today, yep. thousand years of, of, of legal practice. Yep. Um, and, it's, and it's really down to just recognizing the difference between us as machines that post-rationalize and these things as machines that pre-rationalize. I disagree with a lot of what you said. <laughs> that's wonderful. Um, I'm pleased. So we can either dig into that or we can not, and that's I'm ha- fine. I'm happy either way. Um, so I like, so, but <laughs> I really like the idea that we are getting ahead of, that the idea of getting ahead of the game with the um, um, hypothetical court situations. I like that because it means that people are are thinking about the situations before they are occurred and they're better prepared for when something does occur to make decisions about it. I really like that. I think that's a great idea. Unfortunately, we don't have a system that does that. At the moment, we have politicians that try and imagine this invented scenario and then the courts are then there to try and kind of interpret yes, what, what, the, the, what yeah. the kind of policy decisions were. And I actually think that that mechanism doesn't work in this situation. Mm-hmm. I think we need to have this notion of mock courts. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I also believe that the, the legal process is its destiny is much more of, 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 a, of a form of theatre um, on kind of mm. ethical yeah. questions as opposed to a... You know, what it is today, I think it's evolving in that direction. So, yeah. I kind of align to that view as well. But I'm interested to hear what, what you disagree with about this. Okay, uh, so I disagree with uh, two main things. Uh, okay. One, the only two, the, <laughs> only two, um, okay. uh, the technology uh, I disagree with, um, and the decision making process I disagree with. So, <laughs> um, we don't, we don't, we do post rationalize, but we still had to make the decision in the first place. But we have no idea how we made that decision. We do because we're social beings so being um, there's two things there's the nurture and the nature yeah. uh, thing but at the end of the day if you if you were um, to put someone in a, a um, experiment where they had to make the decisions they would make a decision they would have to make a decision um, so we can we can actually test for that so we can do the same with machines and um, we can actually negate all the court process because actually if you think about it what we what we actually care about is what hap- in a utilitarian form, right? Yeah. Is what happens. All the post stuff is uh, to do with how we make it better, to do with uh, the legislative, the, the insurance. It's actually not to do with what happened at all, because we in the, the thing happened in, in time and space, mm-hmm. and it happened to someone, and it happened to uh, a cat on the road, or it happened to a granny on the road. That's kind of um, that's my imperative, right? To make the thing that happens better. And I think what you're saying with the court situation is really interesting, and that could play into that. But it it doesn't is not the thing that happened. Um, and the technology point um, is the technology doesn't make decisions like that. It can't. Like how does how would you do it? Um, I know that you briefly watched the video about uh, that I put out about um, automated cars yeah. and the trolley problem. The trolley problem, as you stipulated, is useful uh, psychological experiment. Yeah. Um, interesting how um, it's basically to work out what people, how people would react to certain circumstances. It's not a rule book about how uh, we implement anything or, or the real world. Yeah. It, it doesn't exist in the real world. The analogy in the real world would be a train going towards a person, five people on the track. But that's not what automated cars are. They're they're totally different. Automated cars um, they work in physical reality of of um, speed, uh, deceleration, uh, gravity, yeah. um, human um, psychology. It, it's it's far and surpasses the amount of information you actually have to compute to work out what's going to happen next. But you can easily imagine a scenario where an autonomous vehicle. You can imagine it, but you can't actually make this decision on board with the technology that we have. But you you can you can imagine a scenario where the, the, yeah. the, the vehicle has to choose between. It doesn't. No, no, no. no, But like, yes, I'll stop you there. So, um, my uh, 
language narrative is not choice. It's possibility space. Yeah, okay. No, we... we, we, yeah, we that's, that's, that's my, my language. My, 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 exactly. Uh, my, my bad for being a bit sloppy. But... Um, so, but you, your your choice or your decision mm-hmm. is within you know least least bad scenarios, and you've got to pick which is the least bad scenario. It, it doesn't. It's it's a technology. It doesn't know what good and bad is. No, but it has to it has to pick it has to pick between scenarios. It doesn't. It could just do nothing. That's a, that in itself is a choice. It, but it's not a choice. It's a circum. It's, it's a design, possibility. Space. That's a design choice. So the design choice. No, because if I, so, okay, I'll, I'll take another um, route here. If I programmed an automated car to do random stuff, there's no ethical decisions there, right? It's just random stuff. So you c- you could imagine computing. So this is my problem with um, the technology and the philosophy not coming together. Yeah. So the technology does not work how these people were talking about it. Yeah, um, and that comes down to the legislators, and, and that's a big problem. But you're, my, but you're saying mind. that you're saying that if you build a te- piece of technology that, that makes random decisions, yes, that there's that is, there's no there's no relevant ethical judgment about that design choice you've made. Only the only that you've made it do that in the first instance. Yeah, but I think what yeah. I'm, I think what I'm saying is that there's absolutely an, eth- an ethical design choice in there to make it random, but not the or actual to, individual or to do nothing. Processes. Um, I, I can, the, the scenario where you've got, you know, the, the five people on one side and the one person on the other, yes, yeah. and the machine has a binary. Um, but that will never happen. We, we won't like um, <laughs> get bogged down in this. But um, in the real world, yeah, um, it's very rare that you have a binary choice in anything. Yeah. In in your breakfast choices in um, how you cycle your bike um, from moment to moment to moment to moment. The reality of binary doesn't really exist. Um, it exists in a computer because you have ones and zeros. Sure. And that's what we're battling against. But even if, we've got, even if you've got multiple solutions, you have... They're not solutions, they're just things. You have multiple goals, multiple endpoints, multiple no. predictions. Predictions um, is, is totally yeah. true, yeah. So you still have a... You still have to decide between which of those paths you're going to follow. Yeah. And what I'm saying is that this, the, the decision-making mechanism of how to decide mm-hmm. at the moment is based on a you know, value-based. You know, the people, the, the Tom Lexicon is like, yep. maybe insurance companies should uh, answer this question yeah, based yeah, yeah. On, on dollar value. And that's that's or, or should be, horrific, isn't it? <laughs> It is, yeah. or it should be like the, the, the driver has has a waiting versus mm-hmm. the passenger versus that people externally. Yes, yeah. or you wait people by age, or you wait people by ethnicity, which mm-hmm. is even more horrific. So you you start to then laden the calculation with these measures. What I'm saying is there should be a more complex mechanism mm-hmm. to evaluate those possibilities, yeah. and that is which is the most legal um, route. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and. The technologist's objection to that is, well, that's a much more complex problem to solve than just calculating the, the value of an injury. And my answer is, yes, <laughs> absolutely, it's a more... And we shouldn't let the things on the road until they've reached the level of sophistication where they can make those choices. Yeah. Um, being realistic... Sure. We've already got self-driving cars on the road. Yes. Um, yeah. In England, especially, we don't have any laws against it. Yeah, so. and, and most people don't realise that. Mm-hmm. And so this is a you know the way we're going to solve this is 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 unfortunately retrospective. The courts will decide on cases where things go badly wrong, mm-hmm. and yes. and hopefully the big bet that everyone's placing is that nothing too badly wrong will go wrong. Yes. Um, and and these will be fringe cases, and we will move the needle towards a, yeah. an answer that way. But I don't think that's the right way to no. do it. Yeah, I mean, you're, you, it's an interesting uh, point. I'm going to yeah. have to go in. Sure. Is that all right? Um, so, sorry we got a bit heated there. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's not heated I've, at all. I've, I've just got a lot uh, a lot to say about the 20 problem, as you know. Um, and I'm... Uh, I'd, love to, I'd, love to, I'd love to kind of battle that through with you more, because yeah. I, I think I was, I was being, you know, I was being kind of sloppy with my language, but... Um, I was, I was, yeah, I think debating that problem is actually very, very interesting. Yeah. And I like what you said at the end with um, how you can... Um, you we're basically trying to make it better than good enough. Uh, everyone's trying to make the system which is basically good enough. And we don't want good enough. We want, I think, good, you know, good, better, and like I'll, the and best. And also taking, taking the, the problems to mm. the people that have the most competence in solving those problems. So I think, you know, the machine learning... 
experts at the coalface who are programming the decision-making engine, yep. I just don't think are equipped to answer the ethical questions at all. Yep. Um, but we have, on the other hand, we know we have a judiciary that is really well equipped to solve these problems. Yep. And um, the question is, how do you join those two people together? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, that's how we, we look to solve uh, this stuff. And the, the point you made about the way humans make decisions, um, again, I disagree with that. You know, whether you argue that we have free will or whether you argue that it's just yep. quantums, particles Flashing doing around, their thing yep. or whatever, whatever, I don't think that really, I don't think that really matters, but I think it's very hard, well, it's impossible to, to, to say for sure why someone made a decision. Mm. That's the court system tries to build a narrative yep. for, for that person. You know, you say it was this. Yeah, sure. Um, hopefully you're telling the truth, but we have no way of but knowing But it's also that. the language you use it, and, you know, what you can remember and all these other, like, mediated yeah. aspects of that. And we say we hope that the person tells the truth. And we hope yeah. that, that they're honest. And we hope that when they say... I'm a die-hard utilitarian and so it was no question at all that one person was going to die and it was yeah, always yeah. right in my mind. The reality is a lot of people in that situation, they just freeze. Yeah. They, just, they, they, they don't make any ethical choice. They just feel, yeah. find them, or they run away. What, what I, what I, um, <laughs> or they flick the switch as fast yeah, as they can they just, and hope yeah, that... Yeah, freak out, yeah. And so people make, in the, in the moment, people make, I think... There's, there's a couple of Very interesting uh, variations you can do with the triangle problem, which is putting your mum on that one track, yeah. or Obama, or whatever, and yeah. seeing what the differences are. Uh, but then, but again, we're we're only testing human. And that's why, as a, as a psychological experiment, it's it's very interesting to analyse people's rational responses to it, mm. because um, you know, you and I could rationalise, you know you know, the value of life of Obama versus a, a relative, and yeah. You know, we can have that conversation in the cold light of day, but if we were there standing next to the track, mm -hmm. um, I don't know how I would behave. And you know, this the classic thing of yeah. you know, would you kill a, would you kill somebody who killed your child? Um, you know, I would, I would have a very rational kind of, well, this is my viewpoint on that, and this is how I think I would feel. Yes. In the yeah. moment, I might pull the trigger, <laughs> and um, I just don't know. Yeah. And yeah. I just hope that you never get into that. Sentence. I never get into that situation. And if yeah. I did, I hope that. You know, I'm able to build a narrative that I can live with, yep. um, and I hope that's a narrative that society can judge me by fairly. And I think that's the that's the that's the important part right. of the trolley problem. Charles, <laughs> thank you very much for your time. It's fun. <laughs> I feel like we could continue, but I know you've got to get off. Um, how can people contact you, follow you, all those sorts of things? Uh, thank you. So, yeah, Twitter, Data Philosopher, um, and that has a link to my website, which is uh, www.datafilos.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for your Pleasure. time. Thank you.